0: Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Sunday, November 22nd. And today we are airing the second part of our interview with William J. Bratton, a law enforcement expert. Yeah, he ran the big police forces in New York, in LA, in Boston. Yesterday we talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the state of policing. Today, we're focusing on how the financial fallout from COVID-19 could really impact so many of the police forces around the United States. And, you know, I think that this is really important because this often happens where we're talking about, you know, stimulus, is it good, is it bad? Well, stimulus might save a cop's job or a firefighter's job or a teacher's job. This is what's so important. So here is the rest of our interview with Bill Bratton. The financial fallout for all of these states and cities is dramatic. And if we don't get money into the state coffers, then many of these municipalities will be under pressure. So I'm wondering if you think about a massive budget cut coming for many of these cities, unless there is more stimulus from the government. What is it that you would do if you were stuck in that position of managing amid budget cuts at this critical time?
1: Well, I've had that experience. Uh, in Boston in 1980, I was the superintendent chief, chief's number two position in that department. We went through a uh, tax initiated crisis where the city budget was reduced by 25% because of a cap on real estate tax. And we had to lay off 25% of the Boston Police Department. I laid off every officer that had been hired since 1970, Oof. which included everybody in my class. I was exempt because I was now the superintendent-in-chief. So we got rid of all the uh, the women that we had hired. We didn't start hiring them till around 1977. We got rid of a large part of our minority representation. We closed half the police stations, shut down the mountain unit, the hobby unit, the police academy, police museum took Boston 20 years to recover from that. So we've been through these crises, and we do get through them, but New York and Boston both experienced significant crime increases, significant loss of confidence in the viability of their cities during those times. That Look what happened in New York in the 70s. So the problem right now is the state budget is a mess. The city budget is even worse. I don't think anybody fully uh, has addressed the crises going forward. New York, in terms of cutting back the size of its department, is the first indication of that. Just reading up a blurb that came over just before you and I uh, started talking this morning, Jill, you probably saw it, that NASDAQ is basically being wooed by Texas. Why? New Jersey's talking about uh, taxing every transaction that NASDAQ makes, the millions of them that they make, to raise what they estimated to be about $10 billion in revenue from the exchanges. You think the exchanges are going to stay around in New Jersey or New York when they can go down to Texas? And so there's a, an additional impact on terms of as the states and cities wrestle with how to increase revenue, the business community, the idea of the city of New York for the next year or so, maybe two to three, is not going to be the New York that we love before 2020. The vitality of the place, the restaurants, the museums, the sporting events, None of that's going to be available for a year, two years, maybe. So in the meantime, if these communities keep raising taxes, then the business community, which has found that it can operate virtually in many areas and is not going to go back to staffing up offices the way they used to and doesn't need to be in midtown Manhattan the way they used to be, uh, they are going to move to Texas. They are going to move someplace else Mm. where those taxes are not high.
0: I'm wondering what you believe is the way that some of these police forces can build bridges with communities. What is is it? Do you sit down? Like if you're in New York City right now, how do you create the bridge? The bridge actually is something you need to begin
1: building before you need it. The idea of the, the prevention. So, for example, during my three years, most recently as commissioner of New York, uh, I had a wonderful executive administrative deputy commissioner working for me and uh, African-American woman. And uh, she, during my three years, put together over 130 meetings with uh, the very diverse black community in New York, we tend to use the term African-American, but in New York, we have African Africans, we have Caribbean Africans, we have Latin American Africans. The bridge building I was attempting to do was that when you do, when, when it hits the fan, that uh, that's not the time you want to start building your bridge. You want to have basically uh, already begun. So lesson learned from the 60s and 70s, the idea of transparency, accessibility, inclusion, and proactive reach out. And so that needs to continue so that when these demonstrations, potential for them to be taken over by the whether it's the far right or the far left, the anarchists, we tend to get this this elements in our society that hate everybody. They're looking for an opportunity to tie their caboose to the engine. So the Black Lives Matter effectively because it was so uh, compelling and the cause was so compelling And these groups, if you will, these hanger-ons recognize that they can get in under the umbrella of those well-intended demonstrations initially and try to effectively infiltrate, if you will. And so fortunately, uh, police will always come. Police will always try to ensure that you have the right to demonstrate peacefully. But when those peaceful demonstrations go out of control, and consciously out of control, which is what the anarchists or the far right or the far left will try to do, then police have to respond. The challenge for police is not to over-respond. And that's that evolution in a sense of, Mm. like, for example, New York. New York doesn't use tear gas. Uh, In New York, until recently, uh, their offices didn't have a lot of the protective gear that you see so many of these other departments around the country look like Bobo cops, like knights of old with armor on them. And so we had to start equipping them from a safety standpoint. And as soon as you do that, it changes the look and the feel of the demonstration and the role of the police changes. But look at football. In terms of football, when it was first created back in the 20s and 30s, they had on this crazy leather helmet and a couple of shoulder pads. These guys now, when you take those shirts off, these football players that they, they have so many things to protect their bodies. Well, unfortunately, that's what we have to try to provide our police officers because in this day and age, that uh, if we expect them to try and protect you and I, we have to also try to protect them. You
0: know? All right, before we go, I want to ask you a very important question. You have spent a lot of time in New York, a lot of time in Los Angeles. Why is that Boston accent so? apparent what's going on are you just clinging to it because you love it uh, I cling to it uh,
1: for the fact uh, out of desperation because people tend to, <laughs> people people tend to like it that uh, for some reason and, uh, when my dad was still alive he passed a couple of years ago I just had to sit in the kitchen with him and when my mother was still alive I'd hang out with my my buddies from Boston and the accent would come roaring back so when I go back to LA or New York they almost needed to translators. I don't hear it myself, but others obviously do. You just commented on it, but it actually uh, is something that has benefited me that when I was chief of transit police back in 1990 here in New York, I had the luxury no other American police chief had. I had a uh, marketing budget and what the, uh, the marketing gurus wanted to use me for was my voice. Because on the radio, when I started talking, it was distinctive versus the usual uh, voices you would hear on television. And I had an experience walking into Macy's at Christmas time and uh, walking up to the information desk, and the young woman at the desk was looking down, and I was asking for some counter of jewelry counter or something, and uh, she looked up and said, "The voice, the voice." <laughs> and she said, "I take a shower with you every morning." I said, "What?" He says, "Yeah, you're on my radio every morning when I'm in the shower." <laughs> That's, uh, and actually, Don Imus uh, picked up on it also. Imus, that uh, when he was so big back then, uh, actually spoofed me. Uh, he actually did a pretty good imitation.
0: Thanks again to Bill Bratton for joining us. And it is always a delight if you have some questions. Do me a favor, just send us an email. Ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. The music here at Jill on Money is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talerzio is our executive producer and my go-to everything. And we are distributed by Cadence 13. It's Sunday as you are out and about, don't forget to wash your hands. Please wear your masks. Maintain your physical distancing. And just do something nice for someone else today. We'll talk to you tomorrow.